friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week on Conversations. We are so glad to have our listeners with us, and we are thankful for your weekly presence. We've prepared a good show for you this week, I hope. I hope you like it. With the uh, death and burial of Queen Elizabeth, we've asked our friend from the National Catholic Register, journalist Ed Penton, who is English and is normally in Rome, but flew over to England to uh, take in the the great event. And we will be asking him about that and how we as Catholics uh, view this monarchy and the state of the faith in England. We're also going to talk to him about Cardinal Zen, whose trial in China was just postponed, and his relationship to the Vatican and to Pope Francis. But first, my co-hostess Ashley McGuire is here with me as we introduce David Nalieri to the show. He is behind the beautifully made and very moving documentary coming to theaters in October 3rd and 4th on the life of St. Teresa of Calcutta. I've seen it. I was given one of those great screening passes, and I highly recommend it to all of you. We're going to talk to the writer and director, David Nalieri, about this film. It's called No Greater Love, Hitting Theaters in October on the 3rd and 4th. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. It's great to be with you both. Really appreciate the time. No, we appreciate your time. Um, and we appreciate the beautiful movie that you made, that you directed and, you that, so and that you wrote. Both Ashley and I have watched it. I watched it only two nights ago. I kept, my husband was working down the hall in his office. He was doing some, some... I don't know, some paperwork that, that was that he was behind on. And I kept calling him over. I said, come over here and listen to this. <laughs> and I would stop oh, it and rewind. Awesome. And I said, Thank you for to that. This. I really appreciate that. You know, I, I've gotten some really beautiful comments from the film. And, it, you know, it's really a testament to the missionaries of charity and Mother Teresa. You know, we kind of turn the cameras on, let it roll. And just to capture the incredible work they do, it's just uh, quite arresting. And then, of course a chance to revisit the life of Mother Teresa. It does, it does pull you in. She was just such a remarkable person. But um, but thank you for those kind words. She was obviously, and, and when you watch the film, you, you get a wonderful idea about this. She was really a foundress from the beginning. The found, She was the foundress of a movement of this beautiful order. And what you see, and, and I hope that all our listeners will, will take the time to watch the movie. They'll be very thankful if they do. What you see is them repeating in their actions and in their words that same charism of Mother Teresa. And it was remarkable how they were able to to take this from her and then make it their own and then spread it across the world. And that I found that very impressive. Yes. You know, we started this project about a year ago. So it was quite an ambitious undertaking to make this feature length documentary in just a year. But when we started, we had to make some key decisions. How were we going to tell the story? We wanted to produce a film that would be very high production quality film that would be looked at as a definitive film on the life of Mother Teresa. But, you know, we had to figure out how we're going to tell the story. She lived such a rich life. She traveled to so many different countries, uh, did so many great works. You had to really cherry pick what you're going to focus on. So the film is a biography in the sense that if you, if you sit down and stay with the film, you learn about Mother Teresa's life and the key events and the key occurrences and themes that shaped her. 
but we wanted the film to really also be a pay homage to the ongoing incredible work of the missionaries of charity this order as you alluded to that she founded that is present in nearly 150 countries around the world serving the poorest and the poor we sent film crews to 10 different countries mm-hmm. we filmed in tijuana where they're working with migrants we had drone cameras following the missionaries of charity as they're on little small boats navigating the Amazon River Basin and going to uh, visit with remote tribes that have no contact with the outside world, filmed in the slums of Nairobi, Kenya, where they work with severely disabled children. And all of that was to show how Mother Teresa, this mission God gave her to quench the thirst of Christ on the cross, to serve the poorest of the poor, to go into the darkest holes of the world to find Jesus present in those who are suffering, is continuing to happen today with the missionaries of charity. And, you know, what gave me what gives me chills and what's made this such an extraordinary opportunity for me as a filmmaker is there probably won't ever be a film like this made in our lifetimes and perhaps never again. And the reason why I say that is the missionaries of charity are not publicity seekers. For them, this was the greatest sacrifice they will ever have to make. As crazy as that sounds, to be able to allow cameras to follow them, to do interviews because they have no interest in publicity and they don't make their apostles open to media or filmmakers or photographers that want to document it. So it was really an incredible opportunity for the Knights of Columbus to be, be asked to make this film and to travel around to all these locations and capture the work of the gospel that they continue to bring forth uh, day in, day out, in season and out of season all over the world. David, I, I have kind of a comment to that effect, which is that having seen the movie, I think my biggest takeaway was that the nature of the movie kind of captures the essence of Mother Teresa and her work in the sense that you bring us so up close and front and personal with the people that they serve. And there's this sense almost like you could just turn the camera and she'd still be there. Like, so that was just an extraordinary accomplishment. And I did, I learned that you you capture this in the movie that she, uh, her interview with Malcolm Muggridge, she didn't want to do. And she had to be kind of told to do it. And that, she, you know, she was definitely not, she was arguably and remains, you know, one of the most well-known uh, household figures in the world. But, you you know, never, never sought that. I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about what, how it actually did come to be that that they allowed the Knights of Columbus and you to tell their story? Yeah, so um, I work for the Knights of Columbus, our headquarters, of course, for New Haven, Connecticut here, where we were founded back in 1882 by Father Michael McGivney, who similarly to Mother Teresa was committed uh, for our first principle is charity. So there's always been a strong bond between the Knights of Columbus and missionaries of charity because of that reason. And the Knights has had a very close relationship with Mother Teresa. We did a lot of printing for them. We had a big printing plant. So we would print their constitution that goes to each member of the missionaries of charity. In 1992, Mother Teresa came to our annual convention, received our highest honor, the Gaudinet Spez Award. Uh, 1988, a few years before that, she had visited our headquarters in New Haven and spoke to all the employees. So there's been a history of a very warm, close relationship. When Mother Teresa died in the ensuing years, the leadership of the missionaries and charity explored a lot of different possibilities in the way of producing a, a feature film, even a Hollywood-style film that would tell the story of Mother Teresa and pass on her legacy to new generations. They went through a lot of different scripts. They couldn't really find the right director. They couldn't find the right script writer. They couldn't find the right actress to play Mother Teresa. Nothing just felt right to them. And obviously it's very important to the missionaries of charity how they present Mother Teresa. This of course is their foundress. This is someone they have a tremendous devotion to and a tremendous love for. And, and many of the sisters uh, knew her personally, you know, obviously um, 
were alive and spend time with her. And so they didn't find the right partner. There was a longstanding relationship of trust with the Knights. I produced uh, with the Knights many documentaries, including a, one in particular in 2016. It was called Liberating the Continent, John Paul II and the Fall of Communism. And that film explored the life of John Paul II and in particular focused on the incredible work he did in Poland in the 1980s, leading um, the Solidarity Movement, inspiring the Solidarity Movement, ultimately helping bring down communism. The Missionaries of Charity loved that film. Some of their members of the leadership, in particular Father Brian Kolodachek, the uh, postulator, really liked that documentary. And so they came to us and we started having dialogue a little over a year ago. You know, with the Knights of Columbus, because you're Catholic, because you have the right Catholic sense, and because of the relationship of trust we have with you, would you consider being the ones to tell the story and produce this documentary? And I'm very grateful that Supreme Knight Patrick Kelly, who has his own devotion to Mother Teresa and, and a love for the missionaries of charity, he said yes. And about a year ago in September, we officially started. We didn't start filming till late October. So, you know, this is a very ambitious undertaking, probably in terms of the amount of work and the length of the film and the amount of archival footage houses that we had to research, everything that went into it. It's probably a two or three year project normally. And we, we basically had to pack that in to 10 months and, and I'm really blessed to have a great team that was willing to work overtime but that's a little bit the background the context of why the Knights of Columbus uh, came to produce this documentary Watching the movie David I was thinking that you must have felt it as a great responsibility to make this documentary about Mother Teresa knowing that you wanted it to be and, and the people that you know understand and want and love Mother Teresa that this was this was going to be a signature project about her life Did you feel it a huge responsibility? And I'm thinking because Mother Teresa means so much to so many people, so many non-Catholics, who when they think of, of the goodness of the Catholic Church, what they think of is Mother Teresa. She, she seems to embody that whole side of the Church that everyone can understand, even people that don't understand our doctrines and our dogmas. Yes, absolutely. It was a big, very humbling. Obviously, it was a tremendous honor initially and excitement because I'm a documentary filmmaker. And so to have the opportunity to do a, a, a tentpole blue chip type documentary on such an iconic figure was a, was a cause for excitement. So initially, yeah, there's excitement and there's a sense of honor and prestige. But then, yeah, it does become a sense of responsibility, you know, especially what we're aiming to achieve with this film. And I think the key thing for me is this is not the work of one person. This is not David Nallieri's vision of Mother Teresa. This film, very my, if, if there's any credit for me and my team, it's being able to kind of package it together in a way that's cohesive and in a way that uh, opens people's hearts and minds. But the film is really carried by Mother Teresa's own words. So, you know, we've got a lot of help with the Missionaries of Charity. All the research, um, as, as I'm sure you and your listeners are aware of, that goes into a cause for canonization. We had very detailed uh, biography. That really helped us a lot to be able to move very quickly into the kind of the scripting of the film and the the vision for the film when it came to the biographical elements. And we got a lot of, but, but, but really the film is carried by, you know, a lot of archival snippets of Mother Teresa. We did a tremendous amount of research finding Mother Teresa speaking in interviews when she would visit countries where she shared a lot about her background, about her spiritual outlook. So there's a lot of clips of Mother Teresa you hear from her directly. There's no narrator telling you, um, this is what you should think of Mother Teresa, or, or this is who she really was. We, there's no narrator in the film. There's you know text on screen that helps create bridges, but the film is carried by the voice of Mother Teresa herself, and by, I think, the visuals of, of all the incredible work they do, because... 
to my mind, when you watch a missionary of charity bathing somebody with leprosy, or if you watch them caressing someone who's dying in a, on the streets, or if you watch them feeding a little disabled child with a hydrocephalus, those very large swollen heads, those visuals communicate better than any narrator's words could do as mm-hmm. who Mother Teresa was and uh, the mission of the missionaries of charity and ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ. David, how was your crew received or or perceived by the people that the missionaries of charity serve that you know we see so much in the movie were they like what is this or excited or was there a little bit of trepidation yeah you know know, there's always gonna be the element of trepidation in my experience um, a lot of other opportunities i've had filming sometimes with homeless people or people who live in shelters a lot of times it could be tricky, okay? Because a lot of times these people that, for example, they may they may have a criminal past, they may have uh, things they want to hide, they may not want to be on camera. So you're definitely dealing with tricky terrain. Now, what, in this particular, for this film, what made it work harmoniously is the fact that the missionaries of charity just are so loved by everybody. You know, the missionaries of charity, because of the work they do, the authenticity of it, they're just respected and loved by everybody. Um, And so when the missionaries of charity go to their apostolate and go to the poor people they serve and say, look, there's going to be a film crew coming. They're going to make a documentary. Because people trust them, Mm -hmm. they trusted us. Um, Absent the missionaries of charity speaking to people, saying this is something we approve of, we would ask you to do that. Absent that, we never could have gotten done this. I'm sure people would be running from the cameras or, or worse. And it was really remarkable to see that. I had a chance to travel down to Rio de Janeiro, where we filmed in the favelas, the slums of Rio de Janeiro, and also on the outskirts of that city in Brazil, where there's a, a place called Cracolandia, or Crackland in English. And this is a place where uh, drug dealers and drug addicts live right along the train tracks. Very, very dangerous location. Um, these people are not even allowed into the slums. And the slums, the police don't even go into. Okay, so it gives you an idea of how dangerous this location is. Um, then we brought film crews there. I'm responsible for their safety and security. So we had to we had to give some thought to this. How do we want to handle it? In a typical situation like this, you bring a security team with you. Uh, but that was not possible because the drug lords who rule these areas would never allow that. So, But we, the missionaries of charity, uh, because of the respect they have for them, the drug dealers, um, the criminals who run these areas and control them, they set a certain amount of time where they backed off. They did not sell drugs for like an hour. Um, they put away their weapons um, and they did that out of the deference and respect they have for missionaries of charity, knowing that these these women are doing God's work. So that gives you a little bit of a glimpse into the behind the scenes sausage making in a film like this. Um, and, and it was only made possible because of uh, the credibility of the missionaries of charity. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my co-hostess, Ashley McGuire. And we're talking to writer, director, David Nalieri about his new film, No Greater Love, a really lovely documentary about St. Teresa of Calcutta. I think you were very successful in connecting the dots between this tremendous call within the call that St. Teresa heard that sent her to the the very bottom of society, the Calcutta slums. You, you have some snippets of what it must have been like back then. I think it was in the 40s, in the late 1940s when she arrived. And correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah, she, how... she first leaves, uh, walks into the streets of Calcutta in uh, December of 1948. There you go, 1948. And and so you you do give us an impression in the, in the film of how absolutely dire were the that was the condition of the people, a famine and, and terrible disease, dying on the streets right and left. But then one thing that I think is so perfect in your documentary is the way that you connect 
those scenes of desperation to the desperation that we that is existing everywhere in the world, here in the United States and in Africa and Rio de Janeiro, like you mentioned, um, and how that same human misery doesn't abate, even though we think of Mother Teresa as going to the, the bottom of the bottom uh, to help those people. Those people are still around us to this day, and I love the way that you connected those dots for us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, that's a powerful theme. You know, Mother Teresa, one of her key principles or teaching was the idea that you know, you have a material poverty. And that's what she encountered in Calcutta with uh, the people dying on the street, the famine, the great hardships that led her to establish Kaligat, the home for the dying, which has such a transformative impact on, on Indian culture in terms of people recognizing the dignity uh, of those who are suffering and the dignity of the handicapped and the severely disabled. So there's a material suffering that the missionaries of charity were called to in, in their, you know, mission statement to quench the thirst of Jesus. But she also pointed out that even these Western wealthy countries, which we, which is our nation in the United States of America. See, she would often say there is this there, I find an even greater poverty. And that is that spiritual emptiness, that loneliness, that lack of love, which ultimately people fill with sex or drugs or other forms that, of, of addiction to try to quench that, ultimately, that, that missing element in their life, which, which can be only fulfilled by a relationship with God. And so Mother Teresa was a real prophet, and she really was able to identify this great sickness in our society. And in, in, in all her trips to Western Europe and to the United States, these wealthy countries, she hammered that point home time and time again. And when you look at the incredible impact she had on so many people's lives, we, we tell two stories in our film. One is a young woman who's a crack addicted mother, met her in San Francisco, late 1980s, had a transformative impact on her life. She was able to get her life together, have her baby, raise her child. The other one, the film that I, one of my favorite parts of the film is the testimony of Jim Wahlberg, um, famous Wahlberg family, of course. He's the older brother of Mark, wound up um, getting involved in drugs, gangs, a lot of problems, goes to prison, gets a six to nine year prison sentence, and in prison has an encounter with Mother Teresa who came to speak to the prisoners. And it was this love that she, uh, this complete love and reflection of the mercy of God that she presented to Jim that gave him a totally new understanding of the Christian faith and ultimately led him on a course to discover a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, how did she do that? She understood the root cause of our crisis in the West, which is this loneliness, which is a spiritual poverty. Um, and so th that's just a, one of the ways in which Mother Teresa was able to identify the ills of society and provide a remedy. And so in the film, we chronicle, yeah, the hope to the dead and the dying and the suffering and the sick which is so important, but also, also to those who are spiritually suffering. And I think in today's present day, as you know, with social media and with smartphones and with the new kind of, you know, work from home culture, it's very easy to become divided, to break apart, to feel lonely. Um, there's a lot of evidence that we're dealing with, a lot of mental health problems growing in society. Um, and so I think even more, it's an opportunity just to turn and learn from the example of Mother Teresa, um, that need for solidarity. And that need to build a relationship with God to find that peace, to find that happiness, and to see the face of Christ in our brother and sister. You mentioned um, smartphones and, and technology, and I was at the U.S. premiere of uh, the movie um, <clears throat> in Washington, D.C., and Patrick Kelly introduced the movie, and he made a point that I thought I hadn't thought about, which is that for many young people, not that they wouldn't know who she is, but they didn't grow up in the time when her presence was very much in the media and she was as discussed and photographed. And 
that there was a, a hope that something that this documentary would do is to kind of memorialize her for younger generations. And I actually brought my 10 year old daughter to the movie who knew who she was, but really didn't know much about her and was fascinated by, by what she learned. And so how, you know, it, with it coming out to movie theaters um, very soon, are you optimistic that this will reach young people and, and uh, help preserve her memory to the next generation? Absolutely. I mean, there's a famous quote by Mother Teresa, not in the film per se. She had a lot of great quotes, by the way. And so I encourage people to go get some of her books or writings. And she had a lot of kind of very pithy, but very penetrating and insightful quotes. But one of them, the most fam- one of the most famous ones, of course, is we're not called to be successful, we're called to be faithful. So I try not to look at coming release the film and look just for metrics or numbers or sales to see, you know, whether or not it's successful. My, but my hope certainly is that the film will help introduce Mother Teresa to new audiences. You know, as, as, a, as a documentary filmmaker, I find it kind of curious and interesting that it was a documentary film, Something Beautiful Forgot, which came out in 1969, written and directed by Malcolm Muggeridge, of course, with a companion book, Something Beautiful Forgot, that really helped launch Mother Teresa into the stratosphere. You know, that put her on the map. And then, of course, we have the Nobel Peace Prize 1979. So I'm hoping that this film can be seen by audiences, young and old. For some people, it's an opportunity to go much more in depth to learn about this remarkable woman and and to learn about how her spirituality, how her gifts can be incorporated into her own lives and help us grow in our faith. But I think for young people, it's just so important that we pass the baton of faith on. Essentially, that's how Christianity was born with the apostles. This is, we have a rich history of oral testimony. We have to tell our stories to our young people and pass on our Catholic identity. And and the generation that we grew up in, I was born in 1980, so I was 17 years old when Mother Teresa died. She is uh, one of the leading figures of the 20th century, and she had a transformative impact on the world. And she was a living symbol of what Christianity is supposed to be, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, And I think her teaching, her life can impact lives. And I think it's incumbent on us to tell the new generation about this remarkable woman, about this great work that God gave to her. And uh, and I hope this film has a chance to do that. And I hope many years from now, I meet a young woman who's a missionary of charity who said, I, I, I found my vocation initially by watching your film and learning about the missionaries of charity. And that, that, that was the birth of my vocation. That's to me, even hearing that from one young woman years from now would be a lot worth a lot more than any reports on uh, DVD sales or, or uh, distribution deals. David, I, I feel pretty sure that that's going to happen. Watching it myself, I think it's going to spark, or I hope it sparks many vocations. There's such a, a nobility about her and, and the other sisters. That phrase they keep repeating over and over again in, in, the, in your film, that each of these people is Jesus. Everyone they touch is Jesus. Every face they see is Jesus. And and how they feel it so deeply and they, they really know it. You know, the things that all, something that all Christians should know. What, what you did to the least of my brothers that you did to me. But they are living that, that beautiful Christian ideal. And, and you did, you, you showed it very, very well on the film, very beautifully and very, it's sort of chilling, actually. The gap between the way most of us live our faith and the way these, uh, Mother Teresa lived her faith and, the, and her, and her sisters live her faith. And one thing you didn't shy away from, and I was wondering if you were going to go into it in the film, and I'm glad that you did, it, it, it brought tears to my eyes, was her terrible suffering, her dark night of the soul. I remember 
learning about this some time ago, but I had forgotten something you say in the film, which was it lasted 50 years. And sometimes I myself go through periods of dryness like everyone else, and I find them very difficult. And I'm not working in slums and taking care of lepers and you know getting up at 4 a.m. To, to say my prayers so I can have a 10 hour, you know, or 12 hour day and doing tremendous labors of love. It, it really touched me to think of poor Mother Teresa suffering in that dark night. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. We it definitely had to be in the film. We didn't want to lead with it. We didn't want to make it a central focus, but it had to be touched on. I think, um, and I think we did in a deft way and in a respectful way. There was when the information first came came out after her death, when they began to do the research for the cause for canonization, of course, they found these letters uh, where she expresses this emptiness and this inability to feel the love of God. And this, this came after, of course, this incredible intimacy she had with Jesus. When she's on that train in September 1946, hears the voice, um, wilt thou refuse, come be my light, uh, quench my thirst, go serve the poorest of the poor. So she's hearing this audible voice of Jesus having this very, very close intimacy with him. Um, and then that disappears, and that never comes back. And the remarkable thing is some of the testimonials in the family is people who worked very, very closely with her were shocked to hear this because she always had that joy, that joy of Christ. Um, she was this incredible channel of grace despite these sufferings. But going back to the point, I think there was some misinformation that came out in those years after Mother Teresa's death where people extrapolated some of the things she wrote in her journals to indicate that she lost belief in God, for example, or that she was having a crisis of faith. And that's never what it was. Um, it was it was always this dark night of the soul. It was this cross. It was this suffering that eventually, through the help of her dialogue and prayer um, and help of her spiritual advisors and counselors and confessors, she came to see as part of something God gave to her to offer up to redemptive suffering and to help bond her in a more intimate way with the poor. And um, yeah, that the aspect of suffering in her life is quite remarkable. We also delve into the film, also this great suffering in her family. You couldn't find a more family-oriented person than Mother Teresa. And she left home at the age of 18, said goodbye to her mother and her sister, who she loved profoundly and deeply, and never saw them again. And that was another element of the suffering uh, that we explore in the film as well that I find quite moving. She was, in her love for Jesus and in her desire to serve Jesus, she was uh, truly willing to suffer uh, incredibly. And, um, you know, that great mystery of the Catholic faith, the, the idea of redemptive suffering, which sees its ultimate fulfillment in Christ on the cross, is really reflected in an extraordinary way with Mother Teresa, because despite all that suffering, are constantly constant pouring forth the love of Christ into the lives of others. I mean, you just look around the world and you see what's happening. You have more than the missionaries of charity in more than 140, 150 countries transforming life after life, giving it them dignity, bringing people hope, uh, bringing people God's mercy. It's it's an extraordinary story, but uh, you don't get there without Mother Teresa overcoming um, and powering through a, a great personal trials. Well, an extraordinary story and an extraordinary film, David. I congratulate you on, on a work really well done, beautifully well done. And I encourage all our listeners to watch the movie. It's going to be in theaters on October 3rd and 4th. And they can go for information to um, MotherTeresaMovie.com. Is that right, David? That's right. Yep, MotherTeresaMovie.com. No age in the Teresa either, but thank you so much for all the support. It's been a great interview, and uh, and yeah, thank, just really, really hoping for a good turnout and that uh, people can open their hearts to the message of the film, which I, I think is transformative. 
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and back with us today is a dear friend of the show's, Edward Penton. He's one of the most prominent journalists from Rome to discuss some very important stories, uh, including the fate of Cardinal Zen, which hangs in the balance right now. Uh, but also, we wanted to talk to him with the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, Edward's been writing beautifully about it in the National Catholic Register, and we wanted to hear it from your own lips. Thank you for joining us, Ed. Good to be with you, Grace. So you, uh, I know you went to the events, you made a flying trip from Rome very fast um, and attended, I'm sure, as much as you could of the, of the pageantry and the, the very solemn event of the, the Queen's funeral and being laid to rest. So can you give us some, some impressions and what you think, especially what you think, uh, if you don't mind, um, that our listeners, who uh, I think are mostly American Catholics, um, should be able to understand from, from this event? Sure. Well, it was a it was a remarkable event. It was um, the end of a seventy year reign of the Queen, which is the longest in in British history. So it was the it was a big uh, send off, really, for, the, for Her Majesty. Um, people from all over the world came. It was watched by millions of, around the world. So it was it was always going to be a big event. Um, and I think what was striking about it was was how much the the faith. The Christian faith of Her Majesty was brought to the fore, especially in the in the prayers and the homilies, the sermon of, of the Archbishop of Canterbury and and elsewhere. And I think it showed really that what made her her, her reign so special was the fact that she did have faith. She, of course, it wasn't the Catholic faith, so it had had she didn't have the fullness of the faith in that sense. But what she did have and what she took from her Anglican faith was that sense of dedication to others, selflessness, um, service to, to her country, which she really put first. And I think that, I think many people felt that was the greatest example that she gave and a great example of her Christian faith. And as I say, it wasn't, wasn't perfect. It was, it was Protestant, of course, but um, it nevertheless was a great witness in many ways to, to living out one's faith. And according to one's vows according to the oath that she'd made to the country when she was only 25 when she became queen so um so yes i think a very powerful witness in many ways there did seem to be a sense in the way that uh, people who were so moved at her passing wrote about her as as someone who had taken a vow someone who was somehow set apart that the royalty the this monarchy it was not just an accident of birth and and also something not something for the tabloids or for its social value as 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 so sadly so much of the monarchies of Europe tend to tend to project towards us you now in the United States in queen elizabeth's case she did seem to to embody a monarchy as related to a special charge from god as a special duty given to her by god do you think that that's how she was uh, she was felt, and that's how her funeral and her internment uh, projected uh, her life? Yes, I do. I think that was crucial to understanding her, her reign and why she was seen as, uh, she was she was loved so much. I think because she put that, that love for, for God um, straight out towards the subjects and, and gave herself to her subjects in that way. So it was a very strong, um, a strong dedication that she had to her people. And that came from her faith. Um, 
so yes, I do think that's the case. I, I think a lot of people, though, don't, because of their secular age, I don't think they necessarily consciously realize that. Mm-hmm. They, may, they may subconsciously sense it um, and, and see that she pointed to something bigger than her, even. And, you know, that it was it was her service to the Lord. And she often would bring it up. She brought it up more and more in her Christmas messages to, to the nation um, since 2000. She always seemed to mention her Christian faith. Um, and she became more and more happy to 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 speak about it. Um, but it does, as I said, go back to her coronation oath. And it said, I haven't um, got this confirmed, but it said that the anointing that takes place in a, at her coronation she, which is a very, which dates back to when it was Catholic. It, it was a, a it's probably the most Catholic state ceremony we have in England still. Um, and that anointing, uh, she thought, was so significant and precious. It was her moment with God that she didn't want it televised. She was, it was done privately. Now that I need to check that, but I think she did. What's certain is she did take that anointing, that that spiritual aspect of the monarchy, very very seriously. And I think that again, I think that's why it made it so special. As, a, as Catholics, uh, when people like me as a Catholic visit England, and I've been there many times because my married daughter lives in London, um, I, I, I find it very, I find it very moving to see the all the traces uh, in England of our Catholic faith. Um, many of them converted in in service of the Anglican faith <laughs> to the to the Protestant faith, uh, maybe raided in service of the of the Anglican faith. Um, but it is very moving to see how what a deeply religious country England used to be. And then at the same time, it's sad to see yeah. how secular it's become. Do you think that this is something that's sad in the Queen? Yes, I think um, what, what's interesting about England is, as you say, it does have a, it has a very rich Catholic heritage. Of course, it was all um, really obscured by the Reformation. But up until the Reformation, there was a great, elements of piety and devotion across the country and in many ways the, the reformation was imposed upon it it wasn't as historians like uh, professor Eamon duffy have shown it wasn't something that the people necessarily wanted it was imposed upon them and i think there is always that spiritual element to the people but i think what's what's a little sad is that that spiritual element comes out came out especially during princess diana's death um that need for a certain religiosity that 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 deep sense of of spirituality, which they, which I think a lot of the people nowadays can't find a, can't find a place for, and I think mm-hmm. that's because they don't they don't see that in the Catholic Church anymore. Whereas it is there, of course, in the Catholic Church, but it's it's almost as though the people are set adrift spiritually, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's very sad. But but they saw again in the Queen that sense of of a, a spiritual life, a religious life, which which I think they warmed to, even if they couldn't quite. Articulated. I think that's that's the sense I get from from when I go back to England, um, and and you know there isn't there isn't that religious formation sadly in, in the country. There isn't that that like you get in the Catholic country um, that formation in in the faith, um, and so and so there is that, that it lacks that in many ways. I also felt that when watching the the events uh, of the Queen's uh, passing. I felt that there were that the people, many of the people, were participating in something that they longed for in their lives—a a deeper meaning, a higher purpose, a, a sense of mission for their country and and for their own lives as as citizens. Exactly. Yes, I agree, and I think that that did come through. And um, we'll see how it goes with, with King Charles. So he's he has a different sort of faith, but I think the Queen 
has tried to prepare him, had tried to prepare him for, for his role. And so we'll see if he continues that. Um, he certainly is a man of faith, but, uh, but a different one, as I say. Well, we'll pray for them. We'll pray for all of the people of England that this uh, this be the beginning of this be the beginning of something beautiful for them. But Edward, I don't I don't want to run out of time without uh, shifting gears rather radically and going to the other side of the world to China, the terrible situation in China. Here on Conversations with Consequences, we we do talk about China a lot. We have a lot of love for our 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 co-religionists uh, in, in China and for their suffering, all the suffering people of China, really. Um, are also, Cardinal Zen, whose trial was just delayed. We follow Jimmy Lai, who is now, who is in jail. So sad. Um, Bill McGurn in the Wall Street Journal, who's also a friend of the show's, he wrote a really um, shocking piece about the Pope abandoning Cardinal Zen in his crisis. Uh, how do you personally gauge that situation between the Vatican and Cardinal Zen's situation? Yes, well, the Pope, Pope Francis, on his on the plane back from Kazakhstan last week, he, he kind of criticized in a rather implicit way Cardinal Zen. He said that he he doesn't feel that, um, well, basically he said he was imprudent and that um, he, he takes a different view. He takes the view of, the Pope takes the view of dialogue, um, and he kind of contrasted him with, with Cardinal Zen, didn't really offer any words of encouragement or or empathy with him. And I think that shocks a lot of people. And I think it really it really sums up the whole attitude that the Pope and the Vatican have taken towards China mm-hmm. and Hong Kong. It is one of putting dialogue first, trying to find ways to, 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 to better relations with China at the expense of everything else. And... As many experts in China will say, this is the wrong approach, that um, you cannot deal with China in this way. It's, it's an extraordinarily naive approach, many will say. And um, what's needed is to deal with them firmly and and not and in the way that Cardinal Zen has done, which is to speak out strongly when necessary um, and not to, be, not to betray the underground church, which for, for decades has tried to resist uh, the, the, this sort of uh, direction that China's taking in, in terms of restricting religious freedom um, and trying to to be loyal to Rome and not um, loyal to the state church which they created. So, so I think there is that um, that there is that big difference of the contrasting opinions between the way the Vatican's doing it, going about this, and those on the ground. And I think a key part of the problem, apparently, is this is what I hear is that the Pope and the Vatican don't really have enough experts advising them on the ground in China what they should be doing. And they, they're they doing it really without being adequately informed um, and uh, really not not being prepared enough when they go into negotiations with, with the Chinese Communist Party um, what, to, what to say and how to approach them, this issue. Um, oh. I think, as I said before, I think they're just determined to find ways to to help the community there to help um catholics there but i think they're doing it i think the the consensus from many china watchers is that they're not going about it the right way maybe their advisors are sympathetic to the regime more than they are to the those people who struggle under the regime uh it sure seems like that sometimes do you think that the that, that the pope's um 
and the Vatican's reaction to Cardinal Zen, their lack of support, do you think it emboldens the regime against Cardinal Zen, or do you don't, or maybe they don't really care what the Vatican thinks <laughs> about Cardinal Zen? Well, I think that it could it could do. I think um, they're where I think what I hear is that the Chinese authorities are wary of, of handling uh, Cardinal Zen too severely because uh, they don't want to make him a martyr, which mm-hmm. is what happened. Um, with Cardinal Kung uh, back in, uh, I think, the 1990s. And they don't want that to happen um, and then draw attention, negative attention to them and and, and uh, give a lot of support to to the faithful and to the West. So I think that is a concern of theirs. But uh, I think generally, though, they're not really concerned about what Pope Francis thinks. He, came, he went to Kazakhstan hoping to meet President Xi. Xi was there at the same time. And uh, President Xi didn't want to see him. That's the second time he's basically rebuffed Pope Francis. He was in Rome and we thought he was going to come and visit him then a few years ago, and he didn't. Um, so it seems as though it's very one-sided that, that the Vatican is trying to do all it can um, to, uh, to to build dialogue at the expense of the underground faithful, and the Chinese authorities aren't reciprocating. And that that's been going on now for some time. One thing that puzzles us here in the United States is sometimes, not sometimes, a lot, uh, the Vatican and and, the, and Pope Francis, the Holy Father, they seem to have very patient, a lot of patience for leftist dictators and oppressors. I'm a Cuban American, and uh, I can tell you here in Miami, where everyone's a Cuban American more or less, um, they there's a lot of uh, incomprehension of how. Pope Francis can be so patient with people like Raul Castro, who we know is a monster among men. Um, and that's not something that anyone disputes as far as his, his just the, the sheer number of people he has destroyed and, and the decades he has ruled over a slave island. Um, why, from, from someone who is not an American, Ed, as someone who's not Cuban either, or Chinese, and someone who has a better, maybe a better perspective, a broader perspective. Can you give us any words of, um, any words to help us comprehend uh, what seems to us uh, an injustice? Well, I think it goes back to Pope Francis's background. I think he he tends to see, as quite a few Latin Americans do, that um, that the the left is sort of more favourable and sympathetic to the left than they are to the right, and um, I think it's the same when it comes to the Pope's uh, approach to China. I think he sees, and other uh, leftist governments, he sees them as, is in some ways more benevolent than than a right wing government or populist right wing government, especially. Um, and so, that goes back, as I say, to his to his formation, the way he was brought up. I think that that's the general consensus or approach to many in Latin America, and and it's and it's stayed with him um but yes i but this 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 stress on patience um is a particularly strange one uh, somebody pointed out to me um that the chinese communist party can move very fast when it wishes to the pope said you know things move slowly in china well um it doesn't move slowly when it comes to genocide of the uyghurs and the crackdown in hong kong they move very fast um when it when they feel it they need to mm-hmm. so you know, it's, it's, it doesn't really add up. And again, it's Pope Francis seemingly trying to make excuses for for a leftist and, in this case, a communist regime. 
Well, Edward, we're out of time, but I want to thank you for the sheer pleasure of having you on Conversations with Consequences and also for your wonderful writing and reporting. To our listeners, please catch all Edward's work at the National Catholic Register by visiting ncregister.com. Thank you so much, Edward. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when he gives us one of his most moving and powerful parables of a poor man dying at a rich man's gate and the rich man's subsequent torment in hell, none of us can remain unmoved when we hear the story of Lazarus covered with sores, being licked and consoled by dogs, longing just to eat the crumbs from the rich man's table. No one can remain unstirred by the desperation of the rich man after he dies, tormented by thirst and worried about his brothers. What moves us all the more is not simply the state each of them is in, but the fact that each was avoidable. In the parable, the rich man goes to hell not because he was rich, not because he had earned his money in an immoral way, not because he had been asked by Lazarus for help and refused, not because he had sent dogs to lick Lazarus's wounds or had done anything at all evil to him. He went to hell. Because when there was a poor man at his gate, starving, he simply did nothing. He was condemned not because of anything he had done, but precisely because of what he hadn't. He was so caught up in himself that he didn't make any effort at all to help out a man who was struggling and dying in his midst. He simply ignored him. St. Matthew's Gospel, Jesus made clear that when he judges us, he will separate us into two groups on the basis of how we've treated the poor and the needy. To those on his right who will be saved... He'll state, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you since the beginning of the world. For I was hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, ill, or imprisoned, and you cared for me. But to those on his left, he will declare with great sadness, Depart from me, you are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Because I was hungry, and you gave me no food, thirsty, and you gave me no drink. Naked, and you gave me no clothes. A stranger, and you gave me no welcome. Ill and in prison, and you didn't care for me. The condemned will poignantly ask, Lord, when did we see you, hungry, thirsty, naked, ill, a stranger, or a prisoner, and not minister to your needs? Jesus will then reply, As often as you failed to do this to the least of my brothers and sisters, you failed to do it to me. The rich man went to hell, because in neglecting the dying poor man at his doorstep, he was neglecting God himself. In failing to love his neighbor, he was failing to love God, and in fact, failing to love himself properly too. So many Catholics are accustomed to thinking about how God wants us to change, simply in terms of the bad behavior we know he wants us to excise from our life. We think about sin just in terms of commissions, the bad thoughts we have, the malicious or mendacious words we say, the wayward deeds we commit. But as we note at the beginning of every Mass, these are not all the sins we commit. We confess to Almighty God to each other that we have sinned not just in our thoughts, words, and deeds, but in what I have failed to do. 
Few of us spend much time, however, examining ourselves on these failures. We omit the omissions, the acts of love we should have done but didn't do. The lesson Jesus teaches us in this Sunday's Gospel is that it's not enough for us not to do evil. We also have to do good, to sacrifice ourselves for those who are in need, to look past ourselves, identify their wants, and do what God makes possible to remedy them. We're now living in an internet age in which we can see all the tragedies happening throughout our country and the world all at once. We see news reports of floods in Pakistan, a hurricane in Puerto Rico, and other massacre against Christians in Nigeria or Madagascar, Uyghurs imprisoned in detention camps in China, Ukrainian refugees in Poland, South Sudanese refugees in Uganda, Venezuelan refugees being moved as political pawns from one part of the United States to the next and we're tempted to flip the channel and wash our hands. We know that 829 million people in the world, one in nine, are chronically malnourished, and 155 million children will go to bed tonight hungry. But we say there's little we can do. We recognize that even after Dobbs, each year more than 600,000 babies, made in God's image and likeness, will have their lives ended through abortion in our country. But we turn a deaf ear to their silent screams. The magnitude of the need can sometimes make us just turn inward, mind our own business, and divest ourselves of responsibility. Pope Francis has called this the globalization of indifference. He's trying to wake the world up to the way we can live like the rich man in the Sunday's Gospel. When Pope Francis went to the small Italian island of Lampedusa, where over 20,000 people have died over the previous quarter century on a perilous 16-hour journey on rough Mediterranean seas, packed as sardines mostly on pirate smuggling vessels. He pointedly asked, Who is responsible for the blood of these brothers and sisters of ours? And he answered, Nobody. That's our answer. Today, no one in our world feels responsible for our brothers and sisters. We've fallen into the hypocrisy of the priests and the Levite, whom Jesus described in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We see our brother half dead on the side of the road. And perhaps we say to ourselves, Poor fella. But then we go on our way. The culture of comfort, which makes us think only of ourselves, makes us insensitive to the cries of other people. We've become used to the suffering of others. It doesn't affect us. It doesn't concern us. We say, the Pope concludes, it's none of my business. <clears throat> we can ask, where does this indifference come from? How can so many in our world, including so many Christians, get to the point where we chronically fail to be good Samaritans, where our hearts are no longer touched by others' misfortune, where we fail even to weep over their sufferings when we notice them? It happens when we begin to prioritize our own desires over others' needs. Our hearts become stony, corrupted, anesthetized, and deadened by the consumer's love of money and material stuff. Like the rich man in the gospel who dresses like a king and acts like a god, we can stuff ourselves with so much food and pleasure that we no longer empathize. We can become so blinded by our ego that we fail even to notice the Lazaruses whom God places at our doorstep, not only so that we might help them, but so that they might help convert and change us. The solution to this complacency is not just to do something for the poor, but to remember God and in God to rediscover who we really are and who others are. In this Sunday's Gospel, the Lord wants to help us overcome our apathy toward others, our indifference, our neglect, our lack of responsibility and love. 
He is never indifferent to us. He never forgets us and left heaven to come down to save each one of us lost sheep because each of us is infinitely valuable to him. He wants to help us to learn how to love others in the same way. But we've got to be willing to respond to his help, to learn to put others' needs ahead of our own, to sacrifice for them, and to take responsibility. One of those biggest helps is sacred scripture. At the very end of this Sunday's gospel, the rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus to his five brothers to warn them that they need to be charitable, to overcome their indifference to the plight of those in need, lest they join him in the place of flames. Abraham, representing God, replies that his brothers have Moses and the prophets, all of whom have testified to the fact that the Lord expects us to care for the sick, hungry, naked, oppressed, imprisoned, blind, strangers, widowed, and all those in need. The rich man, rich man says that that won't be enough because they, just like he used to, were ignoring the poor and ignoring Moses and the prophets too. They were, in short, ignoring God. But the rich man says, if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. Abraham replies, however, that if they are deaf to the law and the prophets, if they're deaf to God, then they will be unmoved even by the appeals of someone risen from the dead. At Mass, we receive the grace of someone who is risen from the dead. And we encounter him not under the appearance of a poor man, but even under the humbler appearances of bread and wine. As he gives us his body and blood, he tells us, do this in memory of me, which means not just to celebrate mass, but to go and do what he does, giving our body, our blood, our sweat, our tears, our food, our material resources to others. Let us act on his words. God who calls us to remember him and to love others as good Samaritans will give us all the help he knows we need to do so. But we need to respond to that grace. Embracing that divine assistance, let us put in the effort to notice those who are in need, to love them, to cross the street and take responsibility for them. This is the path that when it comes time for our judgment, will enable Jesus to wave each of us gloriously to his right for having cared for him in the person of others. This is the way that we may take our seat with all those not eating scraps from the master's table, but sharing in the sumptuous eternal wedding banquet for which the mass is a foretaste. God bless you, and through us all, may God bless the poor in our midst. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 